ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. We kick off the week with another episode of the Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Joining us this week to unpack the biggest headlines is financial journalist Ray Maslaka. Here's what's coming your way. We look at why Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has his sights set on Africa. Then a Harvard report provides some clues on how to fix the country. The professors at Harvard are against the social grants system. They say social grants do not empower poor people. In fact, what you do is you are compensating them for being poor. We make sense of the Forex cartel case involving multiple major banks. Then the global fight against TB continues and South Africa is leading the way. And does size really matter? When it comes to small towns, the answer is no. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, Ray. Thanks for having me. I want to kick us off with a really heavy topic, and that's war. While the world's attention has largely shifted to the horrific war in Gaza, the war in Ukraine is still continuing with really no signs of it ending anytime soon. Now, Daily Maverick's Peter Fabricius recently joined a contingency of African journalists in Ukraine to speak with the country's President Zelensky. Firstly, why has Zelensky opted to meet with African journalists specifically? Well, so far, Zelensky's engagements have largely been with journalists based in Europe. So I think now he understands that the war between Russia and Ukraine is generating a lot of interest in Africa. We have been affected in Africa by this war, especially when it comes to the supply of oil, which has been later refined into petrol and diesel. So this war has really reverberated from the circles in Ukraine and Russia well into Africa as well. And I think uh, Zelensky has that understanding that Africa is quite a, a huge player economically and our economies in Africa are tied with Russia and Ukraine as well. And do you think in part he's also using this recent meeting to kind of divert attention back to Ukraine, considering the global focus has shifted primarily towards the Middle East since the 7th of October? I think so, because most of his engagement with media uh, during this uh, visit, he focused largely on the human toll of the war, talking about how many thousands of Ukrainians have died as a result of the conflict. Humanizing the conflict, that was his approach. He was asked about whether he sees uh, this war ending. Zelensky is quite adamant that he and his people Ukraine will steadfastly defend Ukraine from Russia's invasion. He's still quite committed to fighting Russia and defending the people of Ukraine through the war, but he's not ready now to relinquish any or surrender or admit defeat at this point. I was struck by two points specifically raised by Zelensky himself during the sitting. The first being his emphasis on the fact that, as you've just said, he's not willing to hand over anything really. So he said there's no room for a stalemate in this war. It's not an option because he says that essentially 
the African continent can't expect further investment or stability for that matter if they agree to a stalemate. And then secondly, that Ramaphosa and African delegates left with a better understanding of the war following peace talks in June this year. He said, quote, they, being the African leaders, had left Ukraine changed. Do you believe that perhaps this is a sign that Ramaphosa and the ANC as a whole has perhaps had a slight change of heart about Russia? It's quite a tough position that South Africa finds itself in when it comes to this war. First of all, Russia is a key partner of South Africa under the BRICS formation, and Mm. both countries enjoy an economic relationship, and South Africa cannot afford to disturb this relationship. And that's why you have seen South Africa having quite a sweetheart approach when it comes to Russia. I don't think South Africa's stance on this war will change at all. But President Ramaphosa, he's trying to also find ways uh, on, on resolving this conflict, but also not stepping you know, on Russia's toes. So it's quite a delicate balance that South Africa and the African continent finds itself in, in terms of how it approaches this conflict will be the first to admit that the country's economic and political prospects aren't exactly rosy. But why is that? A recent report by Harvard tries to home in on some of our biggest issues and provides possible solutions. South Africa is performing poorly on many levels. I mean, this has been discussed ad nauseum on this show, as well as analyzed by Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. But a just released report from Harvard titled Growth Through Inclusion in South Africa really pinpoints some of the key failings hampering growth in our country. What were some of the key takeaways for you when you read through some of the findings? So the the paper is from Harvard professors. First of all, we don't need Harvard professors to tell us about the problems, economic problems. (laughs) No, definitely not. We see them as on, we we experience them every day, and the impact is very direct and very personal. So a team of Harvard professors led by Ricardo Hausman have answered the questions as to why South Africa has failed to deliver economic growth and create a much more inclusive society. The main findings is that the the government is weak. It does not have any capacity to respond to the economic challenges. In fact, the report delves into how many of the government officials are incompetent. It Mm. puts it very bluntly that some of the people who are charged with policymaking don't have a, a true understanding of the problems and they don't have any capacity to respond to the problems. Some of the proposals that the paper raises in fixing the problems are the electricity side. The paper proposes that the government embrace the private sector for electricity generation. We have to fix apartheid spatial planning and inefficiencies around there. A lot of people live in far-flung places, places that are very far from economic nodes. People travel, you know, longer from their homes into their places of work. So we have to fix that in order to create a much more inclusive society. The professors at Harvard are against the social grants system. They say social grants do not empower poor people. In fact, what you do is 
you are compensating them for being poor and keeping them deeper into poverty by not enabling them to perhaps have better education standards and getting jobs so that they can lift themselves out of poverty. So, Lazan, these problems are not new. We understand them. But I think this report, what it does, it really brings the issues right at home and front and center as well. And I think it's also important to mention that this particular report also has the potential to influence ratings agencies because many of them also use this report to kind of guide their decisions. But my bigger question is, how do you think government has received this latest, what they call the the Growth Lab report? So what we know is that the report has now been handed to the National Treasury and the presidency. Hopefully they'll take some teachings and learnings from uh, the report that they can implement. But Lausanne, I'm very cynical and I'm sorry to be cynical because we have seen similar reports and papers produced and handed over to the government. And the government has commissioned so many economists to produce reports on how to grow the economy, how to create a more inclusive society, how to fix the load shedding crisis. But the government just sits on these reports and does not implement reforms that come out of these reports. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, unfortunately. And as 2024 comes ever closer, I kind of want to, just to wrap this up, get your view on the potential growth in the new year. Gosh, Lizanne, I don't want to be negative and bring down this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're deep in the rabbit hole of negativity, but I'll try to lift up the conversation a bit. It's an election year next year, and we know that leading up to the elections, nothing much happens. It's like the government sits on its hands and uh, and goes into full electioneering mode. On the load shedding side, we're told that next year might be a turning point for load shedding. We might see reduced levels of load shedding because a lot of money is going into electricity generation by the private sector, into solar energy, wind energy. So we might start to see some of that energy now being fed into the national grid. If we can just get the electricity problem right, Lazan, even just keep South Africa on reduced stages of load shedding throughout the year, stage one or two. It will really move the needle in terms of growing the economy. There's a complex tug of war happening before the Competition Tribunal of South Africa, and many South Africans probably never even knew about it. The so-called Forex cartel case has been dragging on for almost eight years, as 28 banks stand accused of rigging the Rand dollar exchange rate. The banks allegedly used internal chat rooms to make the day-to-day exchange rates appear more favorable for the banks. And while at least two banks have owned up to their involvement, the matter is yet to see the inside of a courtroom. So the next story, it's a big one, and it's the ongoing RAND manipulation matter or RAND fixing matter, and it relates to alleged wrongdoings by 28 banks, both locally and and internationally, between 2007 and 2013. Now, firstly, please explain to us in simple terms, what does RAND manipulation or fixing actually mean? Depending on who you listen to, let's listen to the Competition Commission, which has brought these charges against the 28 banks. The Competition Commission says that between 2007 and 2013, currency traders, people who buy and sell currencies at various banks, decided among themselves to enter into an agreement to manipulate the RAND. So these guys would submit 
fake bids to buy the rand or the dollar. And in in submitting those fake bids, that would naturally lead to the rand-dollar exchange rate to fluctuate, either increase or decrease. Because when you submit bids, when you want to buy the dollar, for example, at the other end of the table, someone else must be able to accept the dollar that you want to sell. So there has to be quite an exchange. So these traders at banks allegedly submitted fake bids to buy currencies, whether it's the dollar, whether it's the rand. And that somehow resulted in the value of the dollar to the rand to be um, artificially manipulated. And that's how the charges came about. The investigation into this has been frustratingly slow, but we have seen some resolution with some of the banks owning up to their involvement and paying multi-million rand fines. Most recently, we saw Standard Chartered Bank agree to pay an almost 43 million rand fine or what it calls a settlement for its involvement. But 13 other banks are still appealing the matter before the Competition Appeals Court. What are some of the main arguments that some of these banks are leaning on? Well, so far, only two banks have settled with the Competition Commission and have paid fines. As you said, Lazan, Standard Chartered is one of them. The other one is Citibank. Back in 2017, if memory serves, Citibank decided to pay a fine of 17 million rand. The banks have fought tooth and nail around this issue, but essentially the banks are arguing that the Competition Commission is relying on broad accusations that lack evidence. The banks have argued that you know they have not been given clear examples by the Competition Commission of individual traders who allegedly participated in this currency rigging scheme. Uh, the banks have also argued that the Commission does not have the jurisdiction to bring charges against the banks because some of them are foreign entities. Some of them don't have operations in South Africa and the South African law, mainly the Competition Act, does not apply to them. Another argument that they've raised is that trading in the rand does not have broad consequences for the economy because they've argued that it is hard for a few currency traders to cause the big shifts in the exchange rate movements against the US dollar. You would need lots and lots of currency traders, even beyond 28 banks, to be able to coordinate among each other and collude to manipulate the rand. So the banks have raised broad arguments, but they are really, really frustrating at the Competition Commission because we haven't even heard the merits of the case so far Mm. because we've been stuck in these fringe battles between uh, the Competition Commission and the banks. So the actual case itself in court has not started seven years later. Yes, even though Standard Chartered has offered to hand over evidence as part of its settlement, which I interpret as them essentially throwing the other banks under the bus, really. I can't imagine what the legal costs are. They must be astronomical at this point. I mean, even the fines, I mean, for Standard Charter to pay 43 million rand or so, that is chump change. I mean, this is a, you know, we're talking about banks that have international operations, have a lot of money to hire the best lawyers possible in town. But, you know, there is a bit of good news here. Most of the currency traders at some of these banks who are implicated in currency rigging, most of them have been fired, by the way, by the banks. Standard Chartered becomes the second bank to cooperate. APSA did the same thing, by the way, too many, many years ago. It decided to cooperate with the commission, turning whatever evidence it has to help the Competition Commission in its case. 
And I think the public is yearning for some sort of justice. You think about corruption or alleged corruption being a public sector problem. No, the private sector is, is equally problematic. Around the world, by the way, regulators have been really gunning for banks who have uh, manipulated currencies. So around the world, in the U.S. in particular, we have seen banks being prosecuted, banks paying lots of money's worth of fines. So so I think the nation really wants to see some form, form of justice um, in this matter. I think we're in for probably another decade's worth of oh, back and forth between the banks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know my, 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 as a journalist, my attention span, because I've been following this matter since 2017, and gosh, Lazan, 10 more years of following this matter. Oh, goodness. I, I, I don't think I have the patience. It's the ninth leading cause of death in the world, with an estimated 54,000 South Africans having died from it in 2022. It's preventable and curable, but yet our fight against tuberculosis is progressing at a relatively slow pace. However, our long-running battle against the disease has also brought with it a glimmer of hope. We reflect on recent gains. So let's get into our, it's sort of a a green shoot, but also not. Last week, global health experts, activists and policymakers gathered in Paris for the annual World Conference on Lung Health. And there was a big focus on tuberculosis. Despite it being a curable disease, TB is still one of the biggest killers globally, with 1.3 million people having died of it in 2022 alone, which I found just staggering. And then added to that, South Africa continues to be one of the countries with the highest number of cases. But It's not all bad news because over the period of about 15 years, we've seen the number of cases drop in South Africa from 1,200 per 100,000 people to just 500 per 100,000. That is a massive achievement in itself. Indeed, I agree. And I think what has happened over the past few years is that South Africa is able now to do rapid testing for possible uh, mm. tuberculosis cases. And also the ability to diagnose has improved and at a much faster rate. And also with the advancement in medical technology, medicine is now widely available to be able to treat cases of tuberculosis. I think this is one of the success stories in, in medicine that, that South Africa, we really don't focus on, we really don't take stock of. When I read South Africa's progress with tuberculosis, as well as HIV AIDS, I must say it, it kind of gave me a feel-good factor, like the Springboks winning the World Cup. <laughs> Definitely. They're quaint, often magical and rich in history. Small towns across South Africa are just waiting to be explored. As Daily Maverick calls on its readers to vote for their most loved gems, we reflect on tiny towns that make a big impression. Now, I want to wrap things up with something a bit different, and it was inspired by the current campaign on Daily Maverick, where people can vote for their favorite small towns. I immediately thought of a tiny town that holds a really special place in my heart, and that's New Bethesda in the Eastern Cape. I love the dusty roads. It's even better when it's just rained or snowed. It's magical to me. I love how it's kind of just nestled between these mountains. 
And then I just adore the famous Owl House and staying. Um, I've stayed at Ethel Fugard's home yeah. a few times. Oh wow! It's it's, it's bloody cold, but it's it's a <laughs> magical place. So I want to know what is your favorite little town that you just can't get enough of. First of all, I know that it should be anywhere in the Eastern Cape, anywhere either Mtata or a, a small town called Dudra. And and the reason why we are, you know, Daily Maverick is running this campaign, um, you know, the, the, the vote for your best as small towns is that especially going into the holiday season, service delivery problems tend to become amplified in small towns. But really, our small towns really need a better PR, a better tourism support as well. But for me, Lazan, any, anywhere in the Eastern Cape, that's my happy place. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ray. It's been an absolute delight chatting to you again. And hopefully we both get to visit our favorite small towns very soon. I think we all deserve a good break. So I hope we get to go to the places that make our hearts sing. Indeed. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks, Lazan. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. Mm-hmm.